Imagine living your life after 50 and feeling energized and excited about your future. Welcome to the Women in the Middle podcast, the podcast for women who are ready to figure out what they want and create the life they deserve. Here's your host and master certified life coach, Susie Rosenstein. there. Welcome back to the podcast, Women in the Middle. I'm your host, Susie Rosenstein, your master certified coach and midlife mentor. And I'm so glad to be here with you again for this week's episode, which is an important one about reevaluating your life after grief in midlife with Krista St. Germain. As you probably know, there are a lot of opportunities to feel grief in midlife, like more than we want. Sometimes life progresses as you might expect, and you grow up, your parents get old, and then they pass. And the older you get, the more and more people you know who die. That's all pretty common. However, sometimes there's an intense and painful curveball and things don't go in the expected order. That's what happened to me. I far outlived both of my birth parents. I, I've now been on this planet 25 years longer than my mother and 16 years longer than my father. That is so hard to believe. They died quite young when I was a kid and that didn't feel at all like the universe was unfolding as it should. <laughs> It did not. Anyway, it certainly shaped my perspective about the importance of celebrating life when you have the chance, which is now, even at your age. The thing is, I know I'm not the only one who's had to deal with grief. It's so common. We all have to deal with grief. And perhaps you're still lucky enough to be enjoying a relationship with your parents, but it's still pretty difficult to avoid feeling grief related to losing somebody important in your life at some point or another. I would say it's impossible. Now, life didn't go along as expected from my guest today either. Krista St. Germain is a master certified life coach, grief expert, widow, mom, and host of the Widow mom podcast. When her husband was killed by a drunk driver in 2016, Krista's life was completely flipped upside down. And while it would have been easy to believe her best days were behind her, thankfully, Krista discovered life coaching and post-traumatic growth and was able to move forward and create a future she could get excited about. Now she coaches and teaches other widows so they can love life again, too. Krista has a powerful story to share. And as I said, experiencing grief is something we all have in common. Her perspective about grief and loss is so useful, and I know you're going to get a lot out of our interview. So please enjoy this episode. Hi, Krista. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Women in the Middle podcast. I am excited to be here, Susie. So excited. I was really so excited to have you on the podcast with us for a lot of reasons. And, you know, I feel so strongly about the importance of talking more about loss and grief and reducing the stigma. Some of the most consistent feedback I hear about the Women in the Middle podcast is how important it is for us to understand that we're not alone and moving through grief is one of those things. So could you start by just telling us a little bit about your take on grief? What is your perspective? You've been through a lot. I have. And yeah, who'd have ever thought that this would be what I actually love and do all day now is, is work with people who are grieving. But my take on grief is first and foremost, that it's a natural human response to loss. And that sometimes we limit what we consider to be grief because, you know, we just have some stigma 
in our culture about what grief is and what grief isn't. But really what it is, is thoughts and feelings that we have about any perceived loss. It doesn't just mean death, right? It can mean loss of a career. It can mean loss of a relationship. It can mean loss of you know anything really. And so it's natural. It's normal. It's nothing we have to judge ourselves for. It's nothing to run away from. And if we want, we can actually see it as an opportunity. Definitely. But when you're in the throes of a disaster, it's very hard to think that way. So would you mind sharing a little bit about your personal story? Sure. So I got uh, remarried. My first marriage was, you know, as many first marriages are, not the most amazing experience there towards the end. And I remarried what I would consider to be the man of my dreams, French Canadian engineer, lovely sense of humor, just a great, great guy. And we had been on a trip, a volunteer trip that we were on, and we'd come home or we're coming home from that trip. And on the way home, I had a flat tire and he tried to change the flat tire on my car. And while he was doing that, he had pulled his car up behind mine. Someone with alcohol and meth in his system hit the back of mm. Hugo's car and that hit trapped him in between his car and my car. So I went from thinking, you know, my redemption story, my life is amazing. The future is bright to within a very short period of time, just having all of that ripped away. There you are, right? And in the beginning, if someone had said grief was an opportunity, I would have told them to go jump in a lake. <laughs> <laughs> or worse. Not, that was not my experience in the moment. Um, but, you know, therapy helped me kind of get back to functioning and get back to work. And then I went through this opportunity phase, which I now consider it, I didn't at the time, but of really being able to reevaluate what do I want from my life? Am I steering my life in the direction that is most meaningful, most valuable to me? And what do I really want to do? What do I want my contribution to be? How do I want to live? And just going through all of that and coaching helped me, led me to a complete 180, right? In, in my career choice and in so many other aspects of my life. And, and so now I just see it so differently than I did then. Then it was painful and awful and gut-wrenching and that's what it's supposed to be. Yeah. And yeah, now I see it differently. So what kind of timeline are we talking about here? And what about your kids? If Could you explain a little bit about what that looked like? So first of all, I think timelines, I can tell you my timeline, but what I hope listeners will hear is that time is just not a useful mm. gauge. It's not a useful measure. And I see a lot of people doing damage because they're judging themselves for what they think, you know, their progress should be over a certain amount of time. Absolutely. And we have some myths about, you know, especially around the one year mark, people tend to think that it should get easier or better, or if they're still struggling. That you know, one that year? shouldn't be. Oh yes. There is, especially among the widowed community, there is just this idea that we just have to hold on and get through the one year anniversary of the passing. And if we can just get to that one year, then the second year will be better. Wow. And it is so frustrating, you know, because then of course we're using willpower to get through the first year. And we're not really actually allowing ourselves to process feelings. You know, we're just hanging on for dear life. And then surprise, surprise, nothing magical happens at the death anniversary. Mm. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, it's a big letdown. So, but timeline for me, so Hugo died four and a half years ago now, it was August of 2016. And again, I don't think that it's really relevant, but for me, you know, it took me, I was back to work in about six weeks. And towards the end of that year, therapist was telling me how great I was doing and how strong I was and everyone was saying, you're doing amazing. And you know, I was ticking off the boxes on the to-do list and everyone's being fed and everyone's getting where they need to be and work is being managed. But inside, which is what I find is happening for a lot of people, we don't feel how we look. Oh, right? for sure. How old yeah, were you inside. when it happened? So let's see. So Marissa is 17 now and that was four years ago. Um, so yeah, 12 and nine. No, I really appreciate what you said. Everybody was getting fed because uh, you know I lost my parents as a kid and I remember my stepmother 
mother always saying, yeah, she just wanted to keep the house and, you know, make sure that everybody was fed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, I, really, and the, I really appreciate that. Yeah. In the beginning, that's sometimes all you can do. I mean, sometimes it's just a lot of work to just shower, you know, you just getting yeah. the basic needs met. But even when someone gets beyond that point, I think what often happen happens is that the rest of the world perceives them to be feeling okay. Yeah. And so they back off. But really what's happening on the inside, you know, is a lot of um, loneliness and emptiness and worry. You know, my big fear was that my best days were behind me, that he was the one, the only one that I would ever truly, you know, he was my soulmate. That's what I thought. And mm-hmm. how would I ever genuinely be happy again? And my best hope was just to kind of resign myself to a new normal. Mm-hmm. But I said that with a, a tone of hopelessness and resignation. That's right. And that's certainly a very common feeling about aging in general, even without death, you know, that the best is not yet to come. Which is such an optional thought. <laughs> I know. I know. It's something we work a lot on in this podcast and in my community. It is so optional. And, you know, once you really unpeel it, uh, you can see that it just it's a choice. It doesn't you don't need to think that you do not need to think that for sure. So would you say that that judgment of I should be better than I am, I should feel more together than I am, I should be farther than I am. Tell me a little bit about the impact of that kind of thinking. Oh, what I find is is that first of all, because most of us don't share these things with others, we just, you know, have this inner dialogue along those lines of I'm not enough, I'm not doing it right. Other people are, you know, we're comparing and despairing, we're having all of these disparaging conversations inside of our minds, but not sharing them with others. And then because of that, we create this sense of isolation. That's really one of the reasons I decided, you know, back when I did to switch from working with people one-on-one to doing it in a group, because I could see how everyone was, you know, sharing these same issues and really feeling isolated and thinking that there was something wrong with the way they were handling the loss or something wrong, you know, in their life that was somehow unique to them. But really, it's pretty common, these conversations that we have with ourselves. And, you know, if we could see that really it is just the natural response to loss, all of these emotions, the the positive ones, the negative ones, they are just a part of it. And if we could stop judging them, we would suffer a lot less. We sure would. But people are so uncomfortable, not just the people talking about the negative emotions associated with death, but people hearing the conversation or squirming away like, oh, my God, if I talk about it, it's something bad's going to happen. Yeah. And I think, too, that because we are so uncomfortable with emotion in general, when we see someone else having a negative emotion, we want to swoop in and fix it. And it's really not ours to fix or we just want to avoid it. And so then we turn away from people who are really looking for connection and and we aren't able to, to be there for them, you know, when they need it most because we're so uncomfortable with what's yes. happening for them emotionally. Oh, my gosh, that is so true. So can you tell us what is some advice for people who, you know, want to be there for somebody who's experiencing a loss, but they're just so uncomfortable? What can they do? Yeah. Never worry that you're going to bring up the subject. I see that a lot where we avoid conversation because we think, well, the person who's had the loss probably isn't thinking about it. And if we bring it up, then we'll just remind them of their loss. That's not usually the way it works. Usually the person is well aware of their loss. It is on their mind. 
a lot. And so it's actually quite refreshing when someone is willing to talk about it with you and share stories or just let you talk that feelings aren't problems that the biggest gift you can give someone is just to witness their experience and be there with them as they have it without trying to change it. Right. Just listening and, and none of this, Oh, he's in a better place. Or, you know, you're, you know, you've got so many years left or there's more fish in the sea or any of these things that we mean well when we say them, but what we're really doing is trying to change a person's emotion. Right. And that's not useful. So can we just witness it? Can we just be there and acknowledge that it is what it is without trying to put sunshine on it? There's such a compulsion to, to say something like that. It's yeah. so not useful, but it's like managing an urge. <laughs> you could just manage the urge not to it's, say that sort of stuff. That would be exactly. Great. Yeah. Or then, and sometimes I think people want to offer their own loss experience and they, they do that because they're trying to connect, but sometimes you know, the person who's just had a loss just really isn't a place, isn't in a place to receive that. And so I know exactly how you feel. No, not really. <laughs> Let's just avoid that if we can. What else can somebody do who like, I, I just know I've seen myself sometimes, even though I've, I'm more aware than many, I have seen myself um, resist because it's not the right time, or I don't think I have enough time, or I don't want to show up unless I can really, really commit and be useful. Mm -hmm. What do you think about those kinds of thoughts? Yeah, I think... <laughs> I love that you're aware of them. And all of them, I think, are really unuseful, right? There is no amazing <laughs> right? time. There is no perfect time. There is no you know, minimum amount of time required. And it's sometimes the littlest things that make the biggest difference. I, I think a lot of people experience a pretty intense fog after they lose someone. And so sometimes we really don't know what we need. And not only can we not articulate it to ourselves, but we can't articulate it to others. So if you can just consider jumping in and filling a need, even if that need is small, I remember some of the littlest things like one of my friends just took it upon herself to buy all of my school supplies for my children, right? Because Hugo died at the beginning of August and school was about to start. She didn't ask me. She just did it. And it was such a gift. And it's sometimes those little things that they don't seem like they're that big of a deal, but they really can make a big difference and they don't have to require a lot of time. And the timing will never be perfect. And if you show yourself some grace when you you say the wrong thing, right? Don't expect yourself to be perfect because none of us are. We're all going to say, you know, we're going to say the thing that we later wish we hadn't and it's okay. We're imperfect humans. That is, that's so important. And by the way, now that I'm older and wiser, when I catch myself thinking those thoughts and I do the thing anyway, but, <laughs> but you're right. There isn't a perfect time. And sometimes a phone call just a phone call, not a text, mm -hmm. but an actual phone call is so important. You know, I'll never forget one of my friends when I was 12 wrote me a letter after my father died. And it is, I can't believe it was a guy. I cannot believe that he did that. And it's still like, I remember it. I would never forget something like that. It's one letter. It, mm -hmm. may, be the, it may even be the only letter I received. Mm -hmm. And we're not in touch anymore, right? But it, it made such a huge impact that he took the time to reach out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be grandiose, right? It exactly. doesn't have to be a, you know, really long letter or really long phone call. Even I had a cousin who would just occasionally send me something in the mail, a little card, little book, little bookmark, you know, just something that was her way of saying, I love you. And I'm thinking of you. 
And interestingly enough, we weren't that close. It's funny how sometimes the support you get comes from the people that you least expect that it will come from. And so I would also say if, if it's tugging on your heart to support someone, even if you don't think of yourselves as particularly close to them, that tug is there for a reason and you should follow it. That's so good. You are right. You are absolutely right. So tell me a little bit. I know that there are some misunderstandings about grief. Can you talk a little bit about that? It's, just, <laughs> it's like, oh, I hear fingernails on the chalkboard sometimes. <laughs> so I think the biggest misconception that I see, just because our culture has really adapted this five stages of grief philosophy, is that we don't understand that just like weight loss theories, there are multiple weight loss theories, right? We know there's you, there's books on every corner about how to lose oh, weight. The yeah. same thing is true with grief. So so the five stages of grief appears to be the most commonly understood grief theory and the most popularly known, but it is by no means the only theory of grief. There are many, many theories of grief. And also the five stages was so misunderstood. So Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and David, David Kessler originally did this work based on hospice patients, right? It was based on people who were going through the dying process. They were coming to terms with their own mortality, not what happens when we are coming to terms with someone else's passing. And it's very different. And so unfortunately, people will come to me and, and they will have looked at this five stages concept and they will be judging their experience relative to this theory. So they will think, you know, it's denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. Those are the, the five stages. They were never meant to be linear, right? But people put that expectation on themselves that first I need to deny, right? And then I'm supposed to be angry and then I'm supposed post a bargain. And oh, wait, was I depressed enough? I'm not sure, right? Have I accepted it? I don't really know. And so they take this one theory of many and then really misunderstand it and misapply it and then judge themselves based on it. And I just find that particularly frustrating. So, you know, grief is not linear. It's not a destination. It's not some, you know, we don't get through it, move past it, get beyond it. We will always have thoughts and feelings about the loss. We're humans. So we will always have this life experience with us. And, and the goal is really about integrating, right? Can we integrate what has happened just like we do with every other life experience? And can we start to think about what has happened in a way that serves us, right? Can we examine those thought patterns and choose them consciously in such a way that we create more of what we want instead of less. But how do we do that while allowing the useful amount of time to grieve? Mm -hmm. Well, if we can just really stop thinking about time as as really, you know, anything to be worried about, any feeling we have, we want to allow, right? We're, we don't try to change patterns of thinking to prevent negative emotion. Any feeling we're already having, we want to allow and process and let it pass through us. And then, you know, we want to start looking for in what way am I holding myself back from the life I want by the way that I choose to see what has happened, right? Yes. So just to give you an example for me, I had to go through a lot of regret, which I first identified as guilt, but later I learned the difference between regret and guilt. But I really beat myself up for a long time about you know, I should have pulled up further on the highway. I should have had that tire checked. I should have insisted we call AAA. Like it was all my fault, right? Mm -hmm. And I see a lot of people holding on to what has happened and making it their fault, right? They should have done something differently. And they really believe it. You think it long enough and you believe it and your brain finds evidence for how you really should have done it differently and how if you had done it differently, there would have been a different outcome. But that keeps us so tied to the past. Oh, yeah. Right? That keeps us prisoner. 
And so it's looking for those kinds of patterns of where am I arguing with what has happened? Where am I creating suffering instead of just allowing clean pain? Now, tell me more about clean pain, because I've heard you talk about that before. Yeah. Well, I believe, you know, pain, and I think you believe this too, pain is a part of life. It we're is. Humans, <laughs> we're, we're supposed to have pain. Um, but when we judge that pain, when we resist that pain, when, you know, we pile all sorts of unnecessary story on top of that pain, that's when we create dirty pain, right? That's when we start to suffer. And so how can we acknowledge how we feel? And, you know, sometimes for me, it's just as simple as I put my hand over my heart and like, whew, you know, this is hard. This is anger. This is disappointment. This is whatever it is, right? And then give ourselves permission to feel it without saying, you know, there's something wrong with you for feeling this way, or shouldn't you be past this by now? Or, you know, you're, you're never going to figure this out or just all the judgment and all the unnecessary story that we heap on top of that clean pain that turns it into dirty pain. Oh, I love that you made that very clear because I'm looking at you on Zoom and I could see right away you put your hand on your chest. And I've seen that be so useful for people as they're becoming more and more comfortable with connecting with whatever it is that they're feeling is to just locate it and to actually touch it. I know mm -hmm. also with me when I was dealing with some anxiety, um, just to really understand where it was and it was so consistent and that understanding and being curious about about it, it really just helped me understand, oh, if I'm feeling that, then I must be thinking something. Let me just see what I'm thinking rather than chastising myself for being in a spin about this. Right. Yeah. And, and I see us do, doing this with positive emotions too, which you wouldn't think we would do, but a lot of people, my clients in particular, because I work with widows, will judge themselves for having a positive emotion. Like it's too soon or they don't it's deserve too it? too soon. It means I didn't love him. You know, it wasn't important to me enough. What will other people think? I'm, I shouldn't be this happy. You know, they, they um, can really create a lot of suffering on top of a positive emotion. Yes. Yeah, that's so sad. I see it a lot. We're so mean you know, to ourselves. We are so mean. Yeah, and we're so worried about what other people will think about how we feel that we just, we don't let ourselves feel how we feel. It's so true. And you know, with midlife, there's some jokes out there. Comedians have made good light of this, you know, that, oh, when, when you get older, you just start to care about, you care less about what people think. And I, I always think that, yeah, maybe... Maybe. I don't know about the people pleasers. Well, maybe. I don't know about the people in the middle of grief. You know, mm -hmm. I think you're right that thinking about the judgment of other people, uh, it's alive and well when it comes to grief. Very much. Yeah. And when we can just get comfortable with our own experience and stop comparing it to the experiences of others or what we've, you know, read about in books or heard about in movies and just allow it to be what it is and find comfort in it, relax into it. It's so much easier than to worry less about what other people are thinking. Definitely. Definitely. So, you know, a thing that's really common uh, as we age is caring for parents and um, dealing with older parents who die. And for many women in the middle, um, they've been involved with care as well. And some have regrets about conversations they didn't have. Um, some have to quit jobs in order to be there for their parents the way they want to be. Um, what can you share about that sort of a situation? And I don't know, maybe just some guidance about how not to have regrets in those situations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I watched my dad go through this. Well, 
not just my dad, actually. I have a complicated family. <laughs> so do I. I get it. I get it. <laughs> parents and step parents, but really, you know, three of the four of my parents cared for aging parents. Um, a couple of them in their home, you know, had their mothers living with them. And um, and so I think part of where we struggle is when we are unable to stay in the present moment. And that is both while we're caregiving, but then also once that person has passed, right? Because when we're in the caregiving role, if we can stay present and be with what is for us, right? Allow ourselves to feel whatever it is we're feeling, even if it's, you know, overwhelmed or worried or whatever it is, but not trying to argue with it, right? Dropping the story as much as possible. And I know it's hard, but dropping the story that this shouldn't be happening because that tends to create a lot of suffering, right? It is happening. And yet we're telling ourselves it shouldn't be. And that prevents us from being able to be there, which then totally. later we, we tend to weaponize, right? And so then <laughs> after the passing, how can we be present there where we are instead of going back and judging and fault finding and looking for all the ways we could have, would have, should have done it differently, right? Because it is hard. It is hard. And that's just the truth of it. It can be hard but it can be hard and beautiful. Hard and beautiful. I love using and. Mm -hmm, <laughs> and is right? so good. It can yeah. be hard and beautiful. Exactly. It's uh, It can really be a gift, not just to your parent, but also to yourself. Exactly. And I really do think too for for, well, really for anyone, but in particular for, you know, women in midlife, this is a time where we are wanting to make sure that, you know, we're living with intention that we are, I think this is what happened for me when Hugo died, right? Is I went, holy cow, life is so much shorter than I thought. Am I doing what I want to do? Is this the life I want? Do I want to be in this job? Right. Exactly. And really then, and what I learned and what I hope other people will be able to take into their lives is that it's not just a matter of recovering from the loss, right? It's not just a matter of going from this kind of dysfunctional place back to this normal baseline of functioning. That's available to us, all of us, but we can also take any life experience, including the loss of a parent or any sort of loss and use it as a way to not just bounce back to where we were, but to, to bounce forward, right? We can use it as leverage and it's not because it's a moral obligation, or because we should or have to, it's just our opportunity of, do we want to, to, to take this time to pause and say, okay, what, what is important to me? Am I living in a way that's aligned with who I want to be, with the values that I care about, right? How, how do I want to take this moment to make sure that I'm living with intention and that I'm creating what I want instead of just recycling the same stuff from yesterday. Autopilot stuff. It's stuff that yeah. just wasn't thoughtful and wasn't intentional. And that's why I call it regret proofing because, you know, a lot of us have regrets and it's not that it's easy to prevent regrets, but you can make a big effort to regret proof your yeah. life yeah. Um, when you're more mindful and you give yourself the pause and you allow yourself to learn and to want happiness, to want alignment, to want more meaning, to want mm -hmm. more connection. There yeah. are some pretty classic areas that people um, experience regret. And one of them is that they didn't live a life that was true to themselves. And, and another one is that they didn't um, share their true feelings with the people they care the most about. Mm -hmm. And so I see that, you know, uh, using it as a time to reflect and using it as a time to connect, uh, it could be real gifts, could be mm -hmm. real gifts to a, 
you know, a very difficult and sad time of your life. Yeah. And I believe that that opportunity still exists even after death. This is my personal choice to believe this, that, right, we still have a relationship, no matter whether we're in physical contact with someone, whether they're living or deceased, we're still having a relationship with them because we're still having thoughts about them. And if we want to believe that we're still connected, that's our opportunity. That's our choice. We can do that. We can have conversations, right? We can still continue the bonds with whoever, even long after they've left this world. And I'm so, so to glad think that that opportunity is behind us is, I think, oh, inaccurate. Yeah. I am so glad you brought that up. I wrote a little piece once in a book, uh, a collection of narratives called Morning Has Broken, and it was called The Rocking Chair Epiphany. And what I reflected on, my mother died when I was five. And what I reflected on was when my son turned five and I was in a rocking chair with him reading a book. And I reflected that even though I didn't have that many memories of my mother, I really don't. Just a few. That her impact on my life is, is so strong. It's profound, you know, and it's exactly what you're talking about is that the relationship continues. And I think about my parents every day. Yes. Every day. And mm-hmm. I, I love that you brought that up because the relationship really does continue if you want it to. And if you mm-hmm. think about it that way. Yeah, yeah. So good. So good. That helped you with so much. In fact, I was, as you were as you were saying that, I just had this this reminder of a time when that really sunk in for me. I was he loved going to the Rocky Mountains. My parents have a, a property in Colorado. And so we would go there and we would hike. And a couple of years later, I was sitting in their cabin and I was there with my daughter and maybe she was maybe 14 at the time. And I was looking at the mountains and I said to her, and it was, it was right after the anniversary of his death, maybe that week. And I said, oh, I wish Hugo was here. He would have loved this. And she looked at me like I had two heads. Like it was the, I swear she's just such an old soul. She looked at me and she said, she said, mama, he's here. And it just like gut punched me oh, because I realized I was creating disconnection from him with my mind. Wow. And here's my daughter and she's she can't even comprehend that I would be feeling disconnected. And she was feeling so connected to him and she had created that for herself. And I will never see it the same way again. Wow. That's powerful. It, it, it pretty much blew my mind. Thank God we have smart kids. <laughs> I know. Where do they come from at that age? I don't know. You know, I, one of the things I really wanted to talk to you about was your perspective on post-traumatic growth. Mm-hmm. When I first heard this concept, I, I pretty much was silent because it's such a, it can seem so crazy at first, post-traumatic growth. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. And I have to say that the first time I heard it too, it was that same record scratch kind of moment where you that go was- with post-traumatic growth. <laughs> What? Wait, what? Because what? everybody knows about post-traumatic stress. <laughs> yeah, everybody knows about post-traumatic stress. So, and, and I think partly the reason people don't know about it is because it hasn't been around all that long. So really just since the mid-90s did researchers kind of start to become aware of it. And it's just the idea that, you know, it used to be thought that the best we could hope for is just that a return to baseline, right? We could just kind of recover and get back to where we were before a loss. But what post-traumatic growth teaches is that not only do we not have to experience or can we get past post-traumatic stress disorder if we have have it, but whether we do or don't have post-traumatic stress disorder, we can experience post-traumatic growth, which is, you know, using the loss as a positive experience, right? As an opportunity to create more of what we want, deeper spiritual connection, more meaningful relationships, you know, a life that's just richer, more fulfilling, more aligned with what we want. And so we really can grow after a loss. 
not just get back to normal. And when that idea is accepted, I think it just allows for the possibility of happiness, fulfillment, and growth. Yeah. Yeah. And that it's our choice. We get to make this choice. We don't have to, and we don't want to weaponize it. And we don't want to, this is what I see my clients do, right? Well, I should be experiencing post-traumatic growth. No, (laughs) it's not a should. It's, It's our opportunity if we want it. We can grow from anything, that is any so life true. experience. Yeah, that is really true. Uh, one of the things that just comes up so much in my community, just about opportunity in general, mm-hmm. that even age, thinking about age being an opportunity is a foreign mm-hmm. concept to many people. You know, we say older and wiser, but we don't really believe it. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. just older. Right. <laughs> Yeah. And post-traumatic growth, it's really about five areas, right? So it's about appreciation of life, which I think can easily happen with age, right? Because of the Definitely. perspective that we have and it's a choice we have to make, but you know, we, have a, we can have a stronger appreciation for life. Relationship with others, like we can sort through, okay, what relationships do I value? How do I want to show up in these relationships, right? Which relationships really do I want to invest my time in? New possibilities in life, because around every corner, there's the opportunity to choose something new. Absolutely. Whether it's midlife or whether it's grief or whatever it is, personal strength is another area of post-traumatic growth. And I don't know about you, but every time I've been through something challenging in my life, I always kind of amaze myself when I look back on it. Because what I usually find is that I'm stronger than I thought I was. Absolutely. It it really like look taking a look at resilience and ability to get in there and Mm -hmm. not just survive, but thrive. Yeah. 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 Not only, absolutely. Yeah. And so that's an opportunity. And then also, you know, the spiritual side of life. So really just honing our spiritual philosophy, whatever that is. And it's different for every person, right? But those opportunities always exist. And if we want them to, you know, trauma can trauma or any challenging experience, it doesn't even have to be trauma with a big T, right? But any sort of challenging experience can be the opportunity for that. Why not? What's well, the downside? Why not? Why not? Exactly. Yeah. So you're not denying that this can be really hard. You're not denying that this can be perhaps one of the most difficult things you've ever experienced in your life. And And, it can also be a lot of opportunity and beauty and growth and connection. Yes. And it is that word and, which you said you love too. Yeah. It's that word and. This is hard and. Yeah. Right. And it it doesn't have to be one or the other. Why would it ever be one or the other? We just Never look one at or things. the other. We look at things so black and white in life. We really do. And and when it comes to wanting what you want, there's so much extra baggage about mm-hmm. what you deserve and mm-hmm. and how to move forward with things that you actually want, mm-hmm. especially happiness after you know it's been denied. And and I'm sure that there's a lot of other complicated thoughts that often go with it when you're trying to explain the uncertainty of life. Yes. Yeah. It reminds me, you know the movie Parenthood? Yes. You know that Steve Martin movie? Do you remember the story that the grandmother tells at the end? Tell it's me. so I good. Don't. So Steve Martin and his wife are having an argument and the grandma, she's kind of known to be like a little, a little crazy. That's kind of how they <laughs> think of her in the movie. And so she starts to tell this story about the roller coaster and the merry-go-round. 
and I won't do it justice, but she basically says, you know, some people like the merry-go-round. She says, but but it just goes round. You know, and I like the roller coaster. And she talks about how her husband used to take her on the roller coaster and you go up and you go down and, you know, it's so much more exciting. And the merry-go-round is fine, but it just goes round. And I think that's it, right? For me anyway, like, yes, we can then not have the next relationship, right? And not experience the same highs and the same lows, or we can limit the risks that we take in the future or limit the emotions that we allow ourselves to experience. And that's a valid choice. It's just not the choice I want to make, right? I like the roller coaster too. And that means the highs and the lows. Yeah. If only we could travel, if only we could travel these days and get you on a roller coaster. (laughs) (laughs) Soon, soon, Soon 2021. So Krista, you have a program, you work with widows. Tell us a little bit about what your program offers. Yeah, I work with specifically widowed moms and I help them, you know, I meet them where they are in their grief. And some of them, it's, you know, it's a very new experience. Some of them lost their husbands a while ago, but wherever they are and whatever they need to work through, um, I help them with so that they can get back to actually loving life again and not just settling for the new normal that they think is possible, but really incorporating, you know, these concepts of post-traumatic growth and truly loving life again. And it's an amazing, amazing opportunity. I just love it. And I do it in a group setting. So what I find is that you know, when we can be around people who share a similar life journey, who get us, and we don't even have to speak it because we just know that they get us, then we can normalize so much of that experience straight out of the gate and just focus on what we need to focus on to make progress. And it's just, it's just amazing. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. I love it. Yeah. And I don't know if if you remember this, Susie, but I'm going to take the opportunity to thank you because, um, I feel like I'm going to cry. You coached me and your coaching. It was one session was a big part of me having the courage to go and become a coach. And I just want to thank you for that because I know, you know, you were doing it all day, every day, and it was just the normal thing for you, but it was crazy impactful for me to have you help me and, and, and get my own brain out of the way so that I could help people. And I, if it hadn't been for that session, I'm not sure I would have become a coach. Now I'm crying. (laughs) Just a minute. (laughs) Sorry. Maybe I should have warned you. (laughs) You should (laughs) have. Yeah, it was before I had even. Oh my think, gosh. Yeah, I, I don't even think I had decided to become a coach. I had just so many. I, I Coaching had been so powerful for me. Um, yeah, and so thank you. You are so welcome. I am so grateful that we both found coaching and it changed our lives. Thank you so much. And you know what, Krista, you're doing so, like the work you're doing in the world is unbelievable. Thank you so much for doing it and for having your own growth and insight and ability to give back in a way that is absolutely changing lives. So all of your contact information will be in the show notes. And please listen to the Widowed Mom podcast if this information can help you. You're an absolute doll. Thank you so much for sharing this time together. Thanks for the opportunity, Susie. Okay, that's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed meeting Krista and hearing her story. Krista believes that learning how to feel how you feel is a giant gift that you can give yourself. And one of the biggest gifts you can give someone who's grieving is just to listen and be there and acknowledge their experience without trying to change it. It is what it is. And isn't that the way it is with relationships in general? I mean, really, think about it. Listening more. So good, even though it can be uncomfortable. 
feeling those feelings for the win. So good. All right. As you know, my focus as a midlife coach is to help you waste less time spinning and feeling stuck about aging, about empty nest, about relationships, about your career, about being more compassionate toward yourself, about all of it. It's time to get excited about your life again. Remember, being the queen of your brain domain is the best way to be, and I am here to help. This is what you learn when you hire me as your coach. Learning the mindfulness concepts are one thing, but when it comes to applying the concepts, that's when you really benefit from coaching. If you want to go from, I wish I had, to, I'm glad I did, let's coach. I can help you grow faster with private coaching. You'll see the connections and insights way more clearly, and we laugh a lot too because you learn to be more curious and more compassionate with yourself. It's so fun to to turn into that, to turn into a person who does that. It's such a good and beautiful gift. So if you're interested, head over to www.talktosuzie.com and check out the options and apply there. You can also join the Finally First Club. We are waiting for you. It's my monthly midlife membership. That's your one-stop home away from home for coaching, community, and connection. You can finally get that fresh perspective that will help you sail into your next chapter with a big smile on your face because you'll finally be putting yourself first and your happiness too. Your happiness first. How about that? Join us now at www.iamfinallyfirst.com. For show notes and links, head over to www.coachwithsusie.com. And to get a copy of my new book, 50 Ways to Celebrate Life After 50, check out Amazon or your favorite online bookseller or go to www.50waystocelebrate.com. Let's do this, ladies. It's time for you to put yourself first, one thought at a time. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you next week.